0: The book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, found on page 1236 of the Church Bibles. To the Church of Laodicea, to the angel of the Church in Laodicea, write These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. "'that you are neither cold nor hot. "'I wish you were either one or the other. "'So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, "'I am about to spit you out of my mouth. "'You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, "'and I do not need a thing. "'But you do not realise that you are wretched, "'pitiful, poor, blind, and naked.' I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Lord, so much for your love for us. And thank you, Lord, that you discipline those who you love. And, Lord, we pray, Father, that you'd give us ears to hear what you're saying to us as Christians and to us as a church today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Now, if you have been a Christian for a number of years and this passage doesn't scare you, then you probably weren't listening to it when it was read. This passage describes naturally what happens to Christians over time as they cool down from their original zeal for Christ. And as individuals all cool down, we find that whole church is, in fact, cooled down. New York pastor Tim Keller comments that it is for this reason that churches constantly need revival. We need revival. We need to be brought back to life. We need Jesus to do to us what a paramedic does to someone who has had heart failure. We need those paddles put on us and to be shocked again back into life. We need not to be those people who find ourselves going through the routines of a religion that sap us, but those who come back to life, come back to a place who are fired up. Because either we end up fired up for Christ, or we end up dead. This passage might describe the warm but nominal Christianity that this country is famous for, and is constantly pulling a church like St. Michael's towards it, and Christians like you and me towards it. So let's take notice of what's going on in Laodicea and and heed Jesus' advice to them. Now this passage is renowned for the imagery of the door, which we find in verse 20, where Jesus stands and knocks And you might have even gone into Keble College Chapel in Oxford, into that little side chapel, and had a look at the Holman Hunt painting, which hangs there and is meant to depict this image. The painting is made to depict um, Jesus standing at the door of the unbelieving heart. And Jesus stands and he knocks, but there's only a latch on the inside and, and not the outside. So he'll wait patiently until the door is opened for him. But this common uh, interpretation, in fact, is undermined by two things that we find in the passage. And the first is simply that this letter is a letter to a church, to a group of believers. It's not a letter to an unbeliever. And the second thing that undermines this common interpretation Comes from verses seven and eight, which Nick preached for us last week, um, which is that Jesus is the one who holds the keys to the door. Jesus is the one who is able to stick his key into the door to open open the door and let himself into your heart. And it is true to say that that Jesus doesn't force himself in on anyone who is unwilling. He has given us free will. But it's also true to say that grace is first and forever um, a, a gift that he gives us and comes from him. Salvation is a gift of free grace. Jesus is the one who puts the key into our lock, who unlocks the door and lets himself in so that we find that we have faith to believe. And even our channel for believing, which is faith, is a gift from him. So we find we don't earn our salvation. We don't work for it. Jesus is the only one who worked for our salvation. And that work was done on the cross. So this door that he knocks on in the letter that we have before us isn't the door of the unbeliever, but the door of the believer. Or rather, the believing church. And and this is a crazy statement to make. And you might say to me, what's going on here, guy? What's happening here? That Jesus is outside rather than being inside the believing church or the heart of the believer. You see, I believe that Laodicea is um, a place where where Christians found that Jesus had unlocked the doors to their hearts, and that he had walked in by faith they had believed. And then as they continued to live their lives, going to church, being part of a house church, being part of a home group, reading their Bibles in the morning, maybe even sitting on the church council, they had found that they had slowly pushed Jesus out of their lives and out of the church, And now he stands on the outside of the door, knocking and wanting to come in. And we can imagine him being pushed down this aisle in front of me, pushed and pushed and pushed until he gets to those wooden doors. And then we push him out through those doors and we close the doors. And every so often you'll hear him knocking, but he is on the outside. Knock, knock, knock. And isn't it ironic This is a church that the letter is being addressed to. It's a church, and it doesn't contain Jesus. But these churches without Jesus exist all over the world. And as Keller tells us, it's the natural state that the church finds itself into when it cools down. It cools down from faith and relies increasingly on its own abilities. So we find in this passage that, in fact, there are three ways to live, and these three ways to live are going to be our headings today. The first way is the way of irreligion. The second way is the way of religion. And the third way is the way of the gospel. These three ways to live. So firstly, the way of irreligion. Have a look in verse 14. We read, To the angel of the church in Laodicea. Right. It is to Laodicea that Jesus is writing. Every church, every people, every person has its own unique history which um, is impacted by its location and a number of other factors around it. Laodicea was a prosperous city and, in fact, the leading city of the southern region of Phrygia. It was famous for many things. Including banking, uh, its medical school, and its cloth production. This is a place that didn't lack for much. Also, geographically, it is famous for containing these beautiful limestone cliffs, which had been formed over time as water from the hot springs of the nearby Heliopolis uh, spilled down, traveled uh, towards Laodicea, and deposited. And their salts as the water cooled down, passing uh, this location. And we aren't sure how the church was founded. One strong suggestion was that Epaphras was instrumental in sharing the gospel there. But we do know that the gospel of salvation through Jesus had been shared with those who held on pagan beliefs and superstitions. Jesus put his key in the lock of the door and he turned his key. The door opened and they moved from irreligion to faith in the gospel. And what joy they found, what warmth they had, what fire they had for Jesus as they came to faith in him. In our previous church, we ran an Alpha course Uh, over a number of evenings in a coffee shop. And one man, a a policeman, a large burly chap, came to faith in Jesus. And the effect was just obvious for everyone to see. In fact, it is so obvious that when he went to pick his daughter up from his ex-wife, his ex-wife accused him of having fallen in love. And Phil came in the next week with this massive smile across his face, And he said he just wanted to say to his wife he was in love. He was in love with a man, in fact. And that man was Jesus. That's the effect of Jesus putting his key into the lock and turning it. The effect of faith in Jesus. That warmth, that passion, that fire, that love, that joy. And so the first way uh, to live, the way that the Laodiceans had been living before they put their faith in Jesus was the way of irreligion. The second way to live is the way of religion. In verse 16, Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot nor cold, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. Religion is what is left over... When our zeal for Jesus, our faith, has withered like water from the hot springs that have cooled down by the time they reach Laodicea. We are just going through the motions. And we are adamant that no one should change our routine of religion. We don't want anyone to change our worship services, because they are all we have to rely on. What if our routine of worship changes? What are we going to have left with? Will our Christianity fall apart, we ask? The reformer, Martin Luther, understood religion to be what our hearts default to, and Tim Keller comments that even irreligious people earn their acceptability and sense of worth by living up to a set of values. That is moralism. Even irreligious people earn their acceptability, earn their sense of worth by living up to a set of values. That's what the heart defaults to. And I believe that the strong push that we see across Europe of climate change activism is largely, partly, uh, due to the religious vacuum which exists in Europe. Don't get me wrong. Climate change is something that we need to be serious about. But I think it partly comes from this desire for moral performance, or more specifically, comparative moral performance. And that's what religion is in a nutshell. We're called to care for creation right from Genesis 1, and we're going to speak more about this next week. But as Christian philosopher Dallas Willard writes, we can only love adequately by taking as our primary aim the integration of our rule, how we live and care for creation, with God's rule. And that is why he says love for neighbor is second. And not the first commandments, and why we are told to seek first the kingdom, to seek first the rule of God. There's a reason why loving God comes before loving our neighbor. And if we reverse the order, or if we forget to do the first, we are left with religion. And we clearly see this distinction between religion and saving faith in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which you might know. The Pharisee stands by himself, and he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But in comparison... The tax collector stands at a distance and he won't even look up to heaven, but he beats his breast and he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus finishes, I tell you that this man, this tax collector, went home justified, went home with a right relationship with God and not the other. But I have to admit that I listen to that story. And in my heart, I say, at least I'm not like that Pharisee. And that's Phariseeism. That's what religion looks like in my heart. At least I'm not like that Pharisee. Comparative moral standards. Thinking that I am pleasing God because I'm not liking another like another, or better than others. That's religion. Try this question uh, for size. How good a life do you live? Rank yourself between zero and ten for how good a life you live. Are you a good person? And let's say five is the global average for good lives. Where do you sit on this standard of of zero to ten. How good is your life? My natural inclination is to give myself a six or a seven, a little bit better than the average. But you see, that is not the story of the gospel. That's not gospel living. Jesus says that we're all zeros. As Paul writes in Romans 3, verse 10, there is no one who is righteous, no one who is good, not even one. We are all zeros, and Jesus is a ten. And on the cross, Jesus offers this exchange. He says, give me your zeros, give me your nothing, and know that you're giving me nothing, and I'll give you my turn. That's what he offers us. We hand over nothing, and we get everything. And that's what that tax collector understood, and the Pharisee didn't. Richard Lovelace writes about how we have a theoretical commitment to the doctrine of justification, that we are saved by grace alone. But practically, day to day, we rely on our sanctification for justification. Our sanctification, we Practically, we think that we're acceptable to God because we go to church, because our recent performance has been pretty good, because we read the Bible, because we give, because we serve. And so often this is a comparative exercise. At least I do better than those around me. At least I'm not like that Pharisee. At least I'm not like that tax collector. And so we find that we're doing religion, we're going through the motions, and we're looking to ourselves and our performance rather than Jesus and what he did for us on the cross for our peace. But we've pushed Jesus. We've pushed him out of our lives. We've pushed him out of our hearts. And we've pushed him down the aisle and through the doors and out of our churches. An agnostic friend of mine at university One said to me over a coffee, Guy, you enjoy going to church because you're good at it. Wow, how that irritated me. I wanted him to know that he had got Jesus upside down. We come to Jesus because we know that we are the opposite of good, we come to him empty handed with nothing to offer. We can't hold to a gospel of grace and be good at church. But yet his statement puffed me up, and I spotted that he had perceived something in me that I hid from myself. There's this unhealthy part of me that had treated church like I treat the rest of life, like a competition, and I felt like I was near the front of the race. And that's what it feels like, to push Jesus out, to turn life-giving, saving faith into deadly religion. It feels so good. You can be good at it, but yes, it leaves you on the ground spat out. Verse 17, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Why does the Laodicean church need to have faith? They're self-sufficient with their banks, their medical school, and their cloth factories. But Jesus sees their true spiritual state, their self-sufficiency. Their self-reliance. And it's meant that they've pushed Jesus out so that actually they're poor, blind, and naked. Faith has gone, and all that remains is religion. And religion will not save them. No one has ever been saved by religion. No one has ever been saved by religion. Jesus didn't come to start another religion. Christianity was only recognized as a religion well after Jesus died. But still, Christianity, the religion, does not save people. People are saved by putting their faith in Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, who died to offer this exchange. You're zero, you're nothing for his turn. And this exchange has the effect of those paramedic paddles bringing life to us now, a life that starts now and continues through eternity to the time we're on the new Earth. So the first way to live is irreligion. The second way to live is religion. And the third way, finally, the gospel. So the one who is creator of the world and judge of all offers advice. He could demand, he could command, but rather he is tender and he offers counsel. In verse 18 he says, Buy gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And put salve salve to put in your eyes so that you can see. Those who I love, I rebuke and discipline, he says. Jesus is calling the Laodiceans to turn back to him. To rely on him to provide for them, not their own resources. Where is your faith? Is it in your own abilities? Is it in your strength? Is it in your bank balance? Is it in your health? Turn to him. Interact with him. Open the door. Bring him back into your life. The one who this letter, uh, is giving this letter, has gentle words. Jesus has gentle words for us. Of counsel. But one day he will return as judge. Time is short. In fact, it's so short that in verse 21 he says, I've arrived. He says, Here I am. I'm already at the door and I'm knocking on the door. And today the Laodicean church doesn't exist. Jesus' warning wasn't heeded and it found itself spat out of Jesus' mouth. Archbishop Trench writes, The fragments of aqueducts and theatres spread over a vast extent of country and tell of the former magnificence of the city, but of this once famous church, nothing survives. Could the Church of England go the same way? lukewarm and spat out? Could St. Michael's? In the original Greek, the cold in verses 15 and 16 is a freezing cold, and the hot is a boiling hot. Strikingly, Jesus would rather have us cold, distant, and without a relationship with him and aware of it, than a phony, lukewarm one. At least that would be honest. We would know ourselves to be in need of saving. But he longs for us, and therefore he calls us to a spirituality at boiling point, as John Stott calls it. This isn't fanaticism, which Stott says would be an unreasoning and unintelligent wholeheartedness, the running away of the heart with the head. But rather, he says it's a commitment that leads to reflection, and a commitment that is born out of reflection. Our biblical reflection should point us to stirring uh, stirring into flame the gift of God that is in us, a poking, a feeding, a fanning the flames which will otherwise naturally go cool and die down. And this fire will grow to the point if it is fanned and poked to the point where we can be like Jeremiah, where he writes, His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am wary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And fire spreads. It burns faster in hotter places than cold ones. How, how do you feed your, fl- your fire from Monday to Saturday? How do you do it? How you feed your fire from Monday to Saturday will determine the fire that you have on a Sunday. So let's open our doors and invite Jesus back in. Let's take up his offer of eating with us. Let's have us, let's have him as our daily companion. Uh, The missionary in uh, the Philippines, Frank Lobach, in 1930s, uh, wrote of how he focused on Jesus for one second out of every minute every day. And he said after four weeks, I feel simply carried along each hour, doing my part in a plan which is far beyond myself. The sense of cooperation of God in the little things is so astonishing for me, for I never felt this way before. I need something and I turn around and I find it waiting for me. I must work to be sure, but there is God working along with me. Far from shutting Jesus out, he had Jesus as his companion every minute. Far from working in his own strength, he was relying on Jesus. Far from getting cold, he got hotter and hotter with zeal for Christ. So what are we going to do? Let's open the doors. Let Jesus in. Let's let him in. And let's take up his invitation of eating with us. Let's not live lives of irreligion. Let's not live lives of religion. But let's live lives that are gospel-focused. And just imagine if we let Jesus into everything that we do, Monday to Saturday, into our friendships, into our tasks at work, into looking after the family, into our book club, into gym, into relaxation, into our holidays. Just imagine the heat that would generate. Imagine those flames that would move from us onto others and set them ablaze for Christ. Just imagine bumping into someone who's a little bit colder and warming them up. And just imagine, as we burn hotter and hotter with zeal for Christ, what the impact would be when we come together on a
0: Sunday. We'd have a bonfire. Let's pray.